Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Derek Marshall. Derek, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. I'm doing very, very well. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. And I, I'm going to read from your page for people who don't know you. I'm running for, tw- this is you speaking. I'm running for California's 23rd con- congressional district because I want to bring the folks of the high desert and mountains together to demand and achieve a more livable life. Now, I should mention for people who don't know, uh, I looked up, so your primary is June 7th. So coming up, mm-hmm. if I, if, did I get that right? Yep. June 7th is our, is our primary. So that's the first of two elections this year for us. And you said, okay, it says by trade, I'm a community organizer. And in my view, public service shouldn't be about political parties and division. It should be about leading by listening, leading by serving and leading by doing the work. This campaign is rooted in love and driven by a belief in the power of a broad diverse spectrum of united individuals coming together. When we transcend our differences to collectively fight for the things that, that directly affect our quality of life, we all win. And I could go on a bit for your, I'll say a little bit more about your bio. You're the oldest of three, raised by your parents in a small town. Your family was active in the church, where you were instilled with the importance of public service and community outreach from a young age. And then here's the fun stuff. Your family ran a weekly homeless outreach program called Soup to Go, while Fridays were for X-Files, Saturdays were for making chili and feeding those in need. Derek is a proud and openly gay man, although he did not fully and publicly come out until his late 20s due to the social pressures so many in the LGBTQ plus community face to conform. And so you're running for office That's uh, and, and you've campaigned for others before. Sounds exciting. Sounds complicated. Sounds uh, like a challenge. I looked up your district. So Kevin McCarthy is there now and he's in the news a bunch. So, so actually, so this is the, <laughs> thank you for saying that um, mm-hmm. with regards to Kevin McCarthy. So the biggest misconception right now is, and this is, this is the difficulty of redistricting all the numbers in California, or or maybe not all the numbers, but a lot of the numbers changed. Uh And so Kevin McCarthy used to have 23. We used to be eight, but we became 23. And and Kevin McCarthy's district is now a new district. I think it's 20 or 24. So uh, the district that we have right now, we're actually going up against Jay Obernolte. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's also, well, he's a freshman Trump-backed Republican. So he's also a, a Trump backed Republican, but it's not, we're not going up against Kevin McCarthy. How did you decide to do it? It sounds like a big deal. It sounds like these are challenging times all around. Time to throw your hat in the ring. What, what, I mean, you've been in politics for a long time. From when I looked at more of your background of your education and, and the, your different ways of serving, it sounded like it was inevitable, but maybe not. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny because I've, I've always appreciated the lane of organizer, working behind the scene, going out to, to neighborhoods, talking with people, talking with individuals on their doorstep like that. That to me has always been something that was more interesting and felt more in alignment with who I am as a person than running for office. But somewhere around, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, in 2020, kind of, you know, beginning of the pandemic, things kind of changed for me. And I think I suddenly started to realize, wait a minute, I actually have a skill set that not only sets me up to organize, to organize people, but also allows me to run for office. And, you know, and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take the plunge. I've got a lot of energy. I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very driven and committed. And so I'm just going to throw my hat in the race. I'm going to work really, really hard. And I'm going to flip this district. (laughs) To talk to uh, the sustainable life, I imagine sustainability and environment is pretty big. Is it the top issue for you? Are there other issues that, what's, uh, not that you have to want the top issue and people can go to your page. I'll have the link to your page. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think I, I have a couple of, you know, I have an interesting sort of background. I you know, did my BA and MA in international relations uh, at American University in DC. I then spent my early and mid 20s in Europe. Uh, so I started an international research initiative that worked directly with the United Nations in Switzerland. That then pivoted into me becoming an accidental, an almost accidental tech manager for kayak.com that was based in Berlin. So there's a certain lens and, and thing about me that is, let's say, international relations focused and having, you know, kind of, you know, a certain um, expertise in the area of international relations. So for me, obviously, with everything that's happening with Ukraine right now, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about that. On the environmental side of things, my mom was a student of Lynn Margulis, who was uh, one of the the folks that developed with James Lovelock, uh, Gaian theory, and the theory that we can live sustainably, and that the planet is kind of a a living, breathing uh, organism, and we're all sort of living sustainably within that. And so there's a land, you know, there's an element of me, which is, you know, having a consciousness around environmental 
And then there's just the lived experience of having lived in Canada, having lived in Germany, having lived in Switzerland, you know, having lived in other countries where I got to see what it was like when people lived without needing to worry about medical debt and bills in the same way that we do here that are able to go to college for, you know, essentially free, or at least fraction compared, you know, fraction of the cost of what we we pay for here. And so that has informed my call it the financial anxiety uh, portion of, of, of what I'm looking to fight for. And so those, those are kind of my three, you know, big issues, it's like international relations, Medicare for all tuition free college education, and the Green New Deal, it's sort of that that is where I'm, I'm, you know, I would say, heavily focused uh, with regards to policy. You said earlier to flip this district, I, it sounds like a new district or newly numbered district. And what, how big of a flip are you looking at? Is it, is it like a really big flip or is it, was it really close? Or do you think, because when I looked up the 23rd district on Ballotopedia, it said that there's a fairly wide margin that he won by, but now it's moving around. But also some, sometimes the numbers don't reflect the numbers of voters don't reflect what's what the feel of the actual district. What's actually happening. Yeah. It's so our, our district is really, really unique because we have been benefiting from a population migration, like within the state of California, people are migrating out of, uh, out of areas like Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, and are moving up the hill. And to the, to the, to the fact that we are now, um, you know, by some sources, we're now the ninth fastest growing metropolitan region in the country, the Victor Valley. So our population center, Victorville, Hesperia, Apple Valley, Adelanto, which is then tied with Joshua Tree, Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, which then also ties to South Redlands and Loma Linda. We've just been benefiting from lots and lots of folks that are moving out of, out of Los Angeles up to the high desert. And, you know, what that looks like is it looks like, you know, if you take a look a couple of cycles ago, the Democrat would get, you know, maybe 36, 37, 38%. The next cycle, they were getting 40, 41%. This past cycle, they were getting 44. So we've been, we've been steadily moving closer to that 50% goal. The 50% goal is, is the flip. With redistricting, we picked up some, some more Democratic areas. We lost some Republican areas. And so we're now in that kind of last you know, let's say three to four percentage points to being able to to flip the district. And when I say flip, I mean, out of the hands of, of let's say, a Trump-backed Republican into the hands of a, of a progressive Democrat. What's the mood within the campaign? Is it enthusiastic? Is it, we got a lot of work to do? Is it cautiously optimistic? Yes. <laughs> all of the above? Yeah. All of the above. It's, it, it's all the things. I mean, I think that I'm a progressive organizer. And so, you know, what I have been doing for the last three, four cycles to the, the, the first race that I ever was, you know, involved with as a volunteer knocking lots of doors was Obama in 2008. But most recently over the past couple of years, I've, I've been doing a lot of just organizing, getting volunteers, uh, hitting, hitting what I like to call hitting volume in terms of phone banking and knocking doors. And so right now in our, on our campaign, we have already, uh, you know, we've done a, a fantastic job. We've developed uh, lots and lots of volunteers. We've been hitting lots of uh, volunteer shifts, hitting volume. So that's certainly very energizing. I have dinner at my place at least once a week where all the volunteers come over and we're like making phone calls together. Uh, that's, that's really great. And at the same time, we realize how much work we have to do. We've got, there is a hole that we need to, to fill. We can do that either by you know, increasing turnout on the Democratic side or registering new voters. Uh, there's quite a few voters that are unregistered. And so that's kind of the, the, the core base of the team. Sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Absolutely, uh, yes. <laughs> and let's see, I was watching one of your videos and it started off talking about the environment right off the bat, which I was pleased to see. Not that I think, I mean, for me, the environment is a very important issue. I'm not, not necessarily for everyone else, but it, it implied it, but it didn't say any concrete specific proposals or ideas. Or do you have things specifically that you're looking to do with regard to sustainability? Yes. So, you know, I, I like to say that our district, I mean, so before the redistricting, we had Death Valley, we had Joshua Tree, we had you know, we had the, the Eastern Sierras, we had the Owens River Valley. So it was, it was massive, massive mammoth. After redistricting, we, uh, we still are huge. It takes three, four, five hours in some cases to go from one side of the district to the other, largely encompassing the Mojave Desert, encompassing the Northern parts of Joshua Tree. So we have a lot of, uh, you know, we have a lot of 
uh, you know, let's say exurban rural parkland. And we also find ourselves in California, which is experiencing the worst drought that we've had, the, the, 12, the quote unquote 1200 year drought. And so what I like to say is that we are, you know, on the front lines of global climate change. Before, you know, last summer we recorded uh, the hottest day ever recorded on earth, or the second hottest day ever recorded on earth was in Death Valley, which at that time was in the district. And I also like to say that we are also the front lines of the solution to global climate change. If you take a look at a lot of the projects uh, that are that are being developed here in the Mojave Desert, solar, uh, if you take a look down um, with, at some of the wind projects that we have, there's a lot of land and there's a lot of projects that are on the books right now to be able to to counter and help to mitigate some of the worst effects of global climate change that encompass everything from renewable energy to, to mass transportation. In fact, there's, there's actually a bullet train, a private bullet train, Brightline West. So we have Brightline East on, in Florida. There actually is another project, Brightline West, which is looking to, uh, to connect Las Vegas to the Victor Valley, which is you know, this, this population center of around 400,000 people that we have here. One of the goals of this, my work, this podcast, but also my book and so forth. Well, the book is upcoming. It's not yet out. But to me, everyone says the environment transcends politics. And I believe it does. And I've had on this podcast some you know, super hardcore Trump supporters, very staunch conservatives. And I walk them through a process to share their, environment, share their environmental values and act on them. And they do. Uh, to be fair, I've also had Democrats and, and environmentalists without a, an affiliation who have also declined to act, which I found frustrating. But to me, one of the big things, one of the big challenges is actually to live, to, to enact this, which I consider a, a big part of leadership is how do we get people who either don't see the environment as an issue? Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. So maybe I should, maybe it's not such a big concern and maybe I should just learn from them. Or if there's something for them to learn to me, from, for them to learn from me, is there something, how do we lead people who disagree to decide this is something important. Because to me, I'm, one of my long-term goals is when people look at, you know, people disagree on laws, but no one disagrees that there should be a double yellow line in the middle of the road that we shouldn't cross. No one sits there at a red light and is like, oh, there's some bureaucrat is forcing me, you know, keeping me from my freedom. Or, you know, we, we stop at red lights around the world. Everyone stops at red lights. Everyone we, some people cross the double yellow line, but briefly and accepts that if they get caught, they're, they're going to get, they're going to pay a fine, a pretty big one probably. And I'd like, I'd like for people to look at environmental regulation like that. We simply don't, you know, I don't know, produce asbestos. How do we, do you have a vision for how do we talk to people that disagree on this? Because if I look at your page, there's going to be a lot of issues that conservatives are going to disagree with, but on some, you hope that they're going to agree. I would think this would be one. So how do we do this? How to, how to talk to people, work with people with strongly, in some areas, strongly disagreeing to agree in some areas? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's two main principles here when, when we're thinking about long-term organizing. So one is, you know, this, this kind of notion of deep canvassing. And the other is this notion of, of using personal story in order to, to really effectively, you know, kind of advocate your position um, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a potential voter. You know, starting off with, I'll start off with, with the, the use of personal story. So, you know, a lot of progressives will use, you know, write down personal stories on different topics so that when they're at the door and they're, they're knocking the door and they're, they're chatting with someone about, you know, whether it's about the environment or whether about healthcare, uh, they can then lean into their personal story in you know, in connecting with the voter. So if someone, you know, if you, you knock at the door and there's a voter there and you say, Hey, you live right off the I-15, you're by this, uh, this Amazon warehouse, um, you know, how's, how's the air quality over here, right? What is the, you know, what's, oh yeah, no, the air quality has been terrible, you know, and then I can say, Hey, I live a couple blocks away. I'm also like this. I, I have all this air pollution and stuff like that too. And then suddenly you've connected through the use of personal story to someone before you've even gotten into the whole political thing. And that then kind of ties into the, the second or the first thing that I listed, which was deep canvassing. 
And that's a tactic and a, and a tool that a lot of uh, a lot of campaigns and a lot of organizers are using right now, which is going out before even talking about politics, before even talking about policy, getting people to, to have this conversation around values, sharing personal story, connecting with folks. Uh, and then what you can do is you can, you know, you can track all that data and then you can go back and six weeks later or a couple months later, and then you can have the next conversation because you've already agreed upon the fact that, you know, the air quality around this Amazon warehouse might not be great. So then you can have the next conversation and you can talk about, well, hey, there's a, an air quality board that's having a meeting to talk about, you know, to, to talk about putting in some air quality, uh, you know, standards. Would you want, would you be interested in potentially going? We can, we can clean our air together. And then they're like, okay, yeah, we can, we can do that. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of tactic and policy speaking specifically around organizing that we can leverage in order to help to, uh, to kind of change the conversation that isn't, you know, a direct knock on the door. Do you support the green new deal? No door slammed in the face. And then, you know, there's kind of the conversation has been closed down. So I'm curious about some of the stories you have to share, but I'm also, it sounded like those, you're probably focused on canvassing and getting votes right now because the primary is coming up. Let's say you win. Let's say you're in DC and it's time to legislate something or I don't know, whatever, whatever you would do in DC. What have you thought about things that you would do? I, I mean, I, I see Green New Deal on your page a lot. Is it simply supporting stuff that's already out there or is there, are there other initiatives you have in mind? So like, so with regards to, to what I would do, I, I think that there, there's been a lot of work. There's a couple of um, Congress persons and, and their staffs right now that are doing this deep canvassing work. I won't get into specifics. I won't name names, although I'm sure folks could probably, you know, could probably guess. Uh, but there's definitely, there are some very, very popular uh, Congress folks that have big volunteer armies where they're able to uh, to do some of this deep canvassing and to really connect with folks and have part of their uh, campaign staff are able to kind of like help to to change the narrative and that to me is is uh, you know is something that I definitely would would be interested in in doing as we develop our own volunteer base with regards to policy I mean I think that <laughs> I think that there's just so much more that we could be doing right now. I mean, like, it's funny because, you know, we, we talk about the fact that we're facing the greatest existential threat to our species, you know, potentially that we've ever, uh, that we've ever faced and that we need to address that threat to the same extent that we did during the second world war uh, in fighting fascism in Europe. Uh, in the way that we, you know, we kind of, you know, transitioned our entire economy to to defeating, to defeating Hitler, and I think that we're we're at another such existential moment. The grand kind of coincidence, irony, and everything is the fact that with Russia invading Ukraine, it kind of um, it, it basically it, it sort of made that threat real because a lot of the reason, or you know, a, a big chunk of the reason that Russia you know, invaded Ukraine, there, there is definitely a strong energy component of, uh, you know, for the, the rationale and the reason for why they invite, invited Ukraine, in, invaded Ukraine, in addition to other, uh, you know, in addition to other security threats and stuff like that, or perceived security threats that they felt. But we, we can't have a conversation, even about what's going on in Ukraine right now with Russia without talking about energy. Uh, and so I think that the types of, of policies that I specifically want to uh, want to support is just a really rapid transition away from you know fossil-based uh, energy generation, a really rapid transition, particularly in the United States, uh, into building mass transportation within within uh, the societies as quickly as possible. I'm going to share some of my you know I years ago when I decided sustainability was going to be a big issue for me. I thought of, I looked around for organizations I could work with and none of them were doing leadership. None of them were promoting what I saw as what would work. They all had issues that were valuable issues. And I thought, should I run for office? And then I thought that what I, th what I thought was missing was cultural change. We value consuming. We've, I mean, people can talk about consuming less, but when it comes down to it, American culture, as I see it, values buying things, disposing of things. We talk about how we live better than kings, but the stuff that they say, like we have that the 
the kings of the past could never have dreamed of. It's also what's filling our landfills. Like we're like, oh, we have TVs and we can talk to people across the world. And yet we throw that stuff away when the new one comes along, implying that we don't really value those things so much. And so what I saw was a need to change culture. And the heroes of mine, the role models of mine, Dr. King, Mandela, Gandhi, Thoreau, they didn't, I mean, they, they might have held political offices later in their careers, but not early on. And I saw that changing cultures came coming from outside that. And there are politicians who have led. I see most politicians these days as not leading so much as following, they're chasing donations for votes. And so I don't see a whole lot of people value, like with regard to the Ukraine, we could drive less, you know, we could, we could buy less stuff. And I don't know if you saw my, like one of the big graphs on my page is of my, in 2016, I, I from an online calculator, I, it, if everybody lived as I did then on earth, we would need 4.3 earths, which is unsustainable. We don't have, we only have one. The average American was 5.0. So I was up there with the average American. I was vegan already and living in New York without a car. So that had me slightly lower, but I was flying around a lot. By, 20, by the end of 2018, two and a half years later, I had dropped that by 90% through various ways of you know, avoiding packaged food and avoiding flying and things like that. Things that at the beginning, I thought this is going to be impossible. And I thought it would suck. Like I was really thinking, I'm taking one for the team. I'm really sacrificing here. And then I found that it was not most of what I was spending energy on and put, what most of my causes of pollution were not improving my life. I thought they were, but they weren't. And only after I made the change could I anticipate that. So that drop of 90% was pure life improvement. I don't think many people see it that way. I think they think that the only thing, we must increase energy consumption. Or not, they're not saying that, but we must innovate with technologies, which sounds great, but historically it's just created more and more pollution. Our standard of living I mean, by the measures of health and prosperity and infant mortality, we're not doing so well relative to nations that are polluting a lot less. So this policy, and as a politician, that's probably going to be your main lever, but it's also being a leader as someone people see and as a public figure, being a role model. Any ideas along those lines? I mean, part of the, you're on this podcast, this podcast, we're going to walk you through the, the Spodic method and Hopefully that'll come up with something, uh, both some results and technique. Sorry, I'm talking so long. No, no, no worries. No worries. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because I, you know, in, in terms of how I, I live my, my day-to-day life, I, I would consider myself to be a minimalist. Um, you know, my, my sister was joking. I, I have a friend who's been helping to, to, you know, style me a little bit for becoming a Congress member. And, uh, and so we, we had this moment where we're in my closet and I have very few things. I have this red flannel shirt that I have worn, you know, like every other day for the past five years, I'm, I'm the type of person that will buy a thing and then wear it for 20 years. And I think that that's just kind of the way, I mean, in my bedroom, I have a, a mattress that's on the floor. I'm just, I'm not someone that like has ever, at least in my adult life, been what, what I would consider to be a consumer. And I think a lot of that comes from the, 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 you know, the, the time that I spent living in Berlin, uh, the time that I spent living in Europe, where there's just a completely different, completely different conceptualization around consumption. And it's really interesting. And again, not to throw my brother under the, (laughs) under the bus, but like, you know, it's interesting going to, to my brother's uh, house and and it's like Alexa, I want uh, the the blinds to open. Uh, you know, Alexa, you know, I want my my picture of my kid to now change into you know to a thing, and and suddenly you're you're surrounded by by lots of different tools. You know, and again, I'm not you know I'm not trying to call it out, but it, but there is definitely there there's definitely a, a large cultural difference, I think. Uh, between different societies, and for me personally, I think that I've always been someone that that just naturally uh, consumes less. Uh, I think that my sort of Achilles heel and, and the area, if I, if I am guilty of something, it is the fact that I, that I do, that I, that I do and have traveled a lot. 
And that's something that I, that I, you know, am, am like acutely aware of and have really spent a lot of time thinking about it. I thought it was so cool when, uh, when Greta Thunberg crossed the, uh, across the Atlantic in that, in that, uh, ship sailboat, I think it was. And, you know, to the, to the, the fact that I was telling friends in New York that they should go and they should welcome, (laughs) they should welcome her arrival. Um, and I I did that. Yeah. Oh, you were there. Okay. (laughs) Amazing. So, you know, so I think that, I think that you're absolutely right around there, there is a culture and there's a culture that we need to, that we need to start, uh, that we need to start adopting. And, you know, it's, it's funny because that, that culture is a lot of times then taken up directly in the culture wars, because you have a lot of folks that will come out and say, well, it's, you know, it's my personal responsibility. It's my choice, like freedom of choice. And I think that a lot of times, you know, just, just good stewardship of resources, good stewardship of, of, of our collective, of our community sometimes flies in the face for some weird reason in, in the face of freedom. Uh, but I really like what you said before really resonates with me, which is I find that that life, I've always found that that life of less consumption regards to, to, you know, to other friends and family is something that has actually made me a lot happy for. I just have fewer things when I travel or it's easier to pack. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, and I definitely, you know, would be open to, to figuring out different ways to help to share the joy of, of, you know, that type of, of minimal packaging and, and like how it can actually like actually declutter your life and make things a little bit easier and happier. Yeah. I'm curious the, the litter situation out there today was the first day, not the first day, but one of the first days out here in New York, it's, it's March, it's winter's not yet. I mean, it's, it's a warm day out. I go to Washington square park. There's litter everywhere. Everyone is walking around. I mean, not everyone, but one day I was walking there with a friend and I said, what fraction of people here do you think are carrying something that they're going to litter with? It's something disposable. She looks around, she goes, I'd say about 85%. There's the packaging and the litter resulting from it is insane. I mean, there's, I don't know how people don't put it together that if billions of people, three meals a day plus snacks, if each one of those meals has a disposable plastic something and for all their stuff that they get, it's brought by box, which the, I mean, the, the amount of packaging, like mostly Amazon boxes, but lots of other, the, the food delivery places and so forth. What's the litter situation out there? Is it as, as wretched as here? It, it's terrible. It's really, really bad. I mean, we have a lot of the, the high desert gets a lot, a lot of wind and there is, there's trash everywhere. And, uh, you know, even in my neighborhood, when I, when I walk out, I, I'm picking up trash every single day and it's, it's everything from coffee cans to the styrofoam packaging, uh, that you were just talking about. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. And yeah. And I just find it so interesting because, you know, a couple of years ago we passed or we banned single use plastic bags and, uh, there were by now, I think famous photos and they were showing the beaches here in California before, uh, mm-hmm. the ban and then beaches afterwards. And it was just, it was dramatic. It was like, okay, there's, there's a policy. It, you know, it, it gets rid of single use plastic bags. And then suddenly the beaches are, you know, are, are dramatically cleaner. And I think that there's, there's just a lot of policy that I think that we can start to put in place to kind of, you know, ban single use plastics. I think also we can start, you know, building a better, a better culture around, uh, around using, yeah, using different types of like silverware and plates that we can, you know, maybe take around with us and, or, you know, when we're eating at restaurants, maybe a culture around, you know, maybe not necessarily taking home something in a styrofoam package, but some other type of, of, of packaging. And I, I know that some of the solutions are offensive, but I know that there are, uh, there are bio-based packaging solutions that that could be that could be used and that we could start to to talk about packaging that that may even biodegrade in a pretty people could bring their own stuff to the store with them yeah people paper plastic i'm using this over the you can't see this but the bag that i bring to the store with me i've been using the same bag since the 90s i have not gotten a new bag 
since the 90s, I guess. And I get the stuff home pretty well. I don't understand how people are so, we've gotten so entitled that, I mean, I think that single-use packaging, to me, culturally, I hope that we soon see it as we see asbestos or marketing cigarettes to children. It, no, one's, no one's like, oh, I mean, it clearly would raise the GDP to market cigarettes to children. There would clearly be good for business if, if all you care about is dollars and cents. No one, I don't think anyone wants to market alcohol and tobacco to kids. And I don't, it, it seems pretty clear to me that these should, that these would fit into that, that category that, and also, yeah, I can't speak for over there. There's a, there's something really in New York city, something that really motivates me, not allowing all this packaging and packaged food and is that in, I think 2000, around the year 2000, they banned cigarette smoking in the workplace, which includes bars and restaurants. All the bars and restaurants said, people like to get a drink after work and they won't have a smoke when they drink. If we ban this, we're going to lose business. It's going to be terrible. People are going to go across the river to New Jersey and smoke there because they can. Two, two and a half years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes in the workplace because people were coming into Manhattan for the clean air. And when we, I think that a lot of people, if we ban soda cans and bags of chips and disposable, all this disposable stuff, I think now before plastic was invented, none of that existed at all, which is only 1907, and, but it didn't get really get popular until a couple of decades ago. And people were healthier then. And I think people think, oh, we're going to lose business. I think it's pretty clear that we're going to gain business. It's going to improve business. I mean, they won't be able to sell certain things, but that's it, the, the playing field will stay level. And I don't know many people who think, I want to go visit New York because it's, it's, there's so much garbage all over the place and there's rats in, in the garbage and it smells bad and the streets are covered with the stuff. Uh, let's go there. I think a lot of people would come in and, and spend money at a place that's clean more than that's dirty. And not just, you know, if you go back to the 70s, New York had a lot of garbage, but it wasn't plastic. It wasn't toxic. It was in principle, I, don't, I wouldn't say benign to the environment, but, you know, metal and paper aren't the same as plastic and all these organic stuff that comes from fossil fuels. So this is just my way of saying, I think that there's a cultural shift to be had of associating cleanliness with good business and pollution with scaring people away as well as terrible for health. And also connecting, I think plastic is going to be like asbestos pretty soon in people's minds, as opposed to just reality. My humble suggestions for directions of policy change and cultural change. Does any of that resonate? Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, it's funny because um, I'm thinking to, to Amelie, right? The French film mm-hmm. uh, with the, the garden gnome. And I think to Amelie and I, I think about, you know, sort of the, the, the message in Amelie is, is it's okay to have, you know, some, it's okay to have some personal, you know, responsibility. And it was, it was written, at least this is, you know, I'm remembering this from a film class, it was it was written as as a as a counter to to kind of like a, a strong you know the the strong French state which has a lot of regulation, and I feel like in the U.S. it's the exact opposite way around. It's that we have put personal responsibility and personal choice on top of everything, and we all have collectively suffered for it. And I think that what that means is is that we see the best and most the best results oftentimes, though not always, when there is a when there is policy that's put in place. And I think around plastic, that's a policy choice. When we see garbage everywhere, that is a governmental policy choice. And I don't think that anyone would actually be okay with it. And when we think about, again, talking about like biodegradable or biomaterials that we could potentially replace plastic with, that again is a policy choice. It's a policy choice to, to invest in in some of these, uh, you know, in some of these materials and develop at, develop at scale so that we could potentially come up with biodegradable solutions to different plastics. And so I, 
yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there's an interesting dance that happens between personal responsibility and personal culture and the creation of policy. And for me, as someone who's an organizer, someone that's that's been in, you know, you know, been or you know, is running for Congress, it's something that I think a lot about. And I mean, one of my favorite stories, just talking about personal responsibility and and, and the culture is recycling in New York City. And at least from what I understand, for the first I don't know, decade or five, you know, 10 years when, when folks were recycling in New York, it was actually all going to more or less going to, uh, to landfills. And so it was just kind of going to landfills. And so the recycling was actually not getting recycled in the way that a lot of people, that a lot of people did. And, and that then, uh, at least again, my understanding from California, uh, my understanding is that people then really got angry when they found out that this wasn't being recycled so they but but there was this personal culture of everyone collectively had been uh had been recycling for a decade and so it kind of created that and elevated and 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 helped to elevate the consciousness around recycling such that they were then able to to pass policy and so it's um i think that it starts at the individual level and then kind of moves up and up until we we come up with a collective solution, which is then more robust and then actually comprehensively deals with, you know, whatever it issue is, whether it's getting rid of plastic pollution that we see either in the oceans or here in the high desert, there's kind of an interesting dance that happens between, between those two things. I look forward to hearing how things, how you develop things in these directions as you, as you serve and serve and serve, I presume, not just one term. And I'm, I also want, if we had more time, I would follow up on recycling and making things more efficient because I've learned that there's a, when you have complex systems, if you, if you make a polluting system more efficient, I find that you pollute more efficiently. Like it, you may lower pollution in one area, but the system as a whole creates more pollution, which is this trend that happens. But I'm going to table that because you're also talking about personal action and personal responsibility. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to go through that process I described before, the, before we started recording. When you think of the environment, what do you think about? And I don't mean like when you act on the environment, what motivates you? And I don't mean what are you trying to clean up, but what inside you, when you think of the environment, what do you think about? Like what images come to mind or experiences that might motivate you? So, yeah, that's a great question. I think I just, when I think about the environment, I think about being in national parks. So I think about being in Joshua Tree. I think about being in Yosemite. I think about being in Sequoia. I think about being in Yellowstone. I, I just, I think about being out in pristine, beautiful nature. I think about all the places that I've lived where you can essentially eat off of the sidewalk, you know, whether it's Kyoto or whether it is Geneva. I think about just the clean and beautiful places on this earth that I have, that I've been to. And for me, I think that there's a huge motivation to help transition our communities and cities into these eco paradises that already exist in, in many, many ways and other uh, in other countries in this world or different, different areas. And so I think it's, it's just better. And I'm, I feel happy when I'm walking down a clean street where there's, you know, very little air pollution, where everyone's, you know, taking the bike where, you know, like a a fantastic design city like that to me really fills me with a, a joy of life. That is, I don't know, maybe it's just like, I'm actually, I feel in complete harmony and in tune with nature. And it it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a national park. It could be in a really, really well-designed, clean city uh, where there's, (laughs) there's no trash and, and very little air pollution. You talked about a lot of different places and I wonder if you could pick, does any, there's Yellowstone, there's Kyoto, there's Joshua tree. Does any particular one come to mind, like a, a specific experience? And you said happy harmony, yeah, can you share that actual yeah. experience? So I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because so I think that we can all remember the first couple of months after the pandemic where the skies were blue that you could only see in art museums. 
because there were <laughs> there were maybe 17th century or 16th century painters that were able to capture the blue of the sky as they were living it because it was pre-industrial revolution and i'm just thinking about like when i was when i was out walking around Joshua Tree during during the pandemic and just like looking up at the sky and just seeing a blue that i had never seen before mm-hmm. and just being really really amazed at what at what at what the sky was looking like you know without all the pollution and and that for me was i think that for me was was a, a huge huge just a huge moment i mean i've been interested in the environment for a while mm-hmm. but to actually see kind of what our sky could look like without a lot of like just talking specifically about air pollution uh without you know cars on the road it was really it was really something I'm, cu- I'm now I'm, you made me thinking about like what was this color blue i mean living in manhattan i rarely see stars which is tragic and because they're so beautiful can you describe again like what what was it like were you thinking like i've never seen that blue before or were you thinking i mean presumably before a certain period of time before we were burning fossil fuels it was always that blue exactly yes did you feel connected with people did you did you yeah what was it Definitely, definitely. I mean, I feel like whenever I'm out in nature, I just feel connected. It doesn't matter who who is out, you know, on on the hiking trail, who who is out there, but there there is this this connection to other people that is, um, yeah, that's beautiful. So, so based on the harmony, the beauty, the connection, these things, it sounds like they're good things that you like. I invite you, and this is that your option, to think of something you can do to act on those feelings that what nature means to you to manifest somehow in your daily life it doesn't have to be for the long term to act on those feelings and before you answer i'm not saying here's something i'm not saying that a lot of people hear i'm not saying what's the most important thing you could do for the environment or can you do one of the things you read about in the la times to here's a little thing you could do it's not for the rest of the world this is just to act on that feeling that you got when you're looking at the blue or the th- feelings that you get when you're at Yellowstone and to somehow do something like that in your life with a couple constraints. One is that you do it yourself. It has to be with your own hands. Not, it's tempting to say, I'll get other people to do something, which fine, do that, but not do that sub- separate. Uh, so something you do with your hands, something you're not already doing and something with some physical component so that after you're done, if you look at it, you could say, I've made the world better in some way. You don't have to measure it. It just has to be not zero. And by your standards, so some physical component. So not just like reading a book or watching a documentary. Are you up for coming up? And most people, when they hear this, they don't yet have something in mind. It takes a bit of going back and forth. And I've done this with a lot of people and it always works out. Want to give it a shot? Let's, Let's do it. So as I said, did any, did any, I mean, sometimes someone's like, you know, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while, you know, and does anything come to mind right away? I think, I think supermarket shopping, mm-hmm. I feel like there's, you know, there, there's, there's an opportunity for me to <laughs> optimize my environmental impact when it comes to, when it comes to shopping at the supermarket, just, just on like the, the, you know, the day-to-day uh, for, you know, for going to, to get food and stuff like that. I think that, I think just committing to not buying things that are packaged mm-hmm. to rather just to, to go and like get vegetables. I mean, again, like I'm, uh, we are talking before about me being a minimalist and the same thing with, with food. I have like, you know, the same, like, you know, five or 10 things that I, that I get. And if I just committed to, to not getting, to not buying packaged anything i think that that's something that i could could do relatively easy this is very near to my heart because my whole thing began with my challenge myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food which i thought i knew i could do it in principle but i had no conception of how i would actually do it and the actually doing that's what's that's why i'm here now and i'm curious so and and does this connect with those feelings of like was it just something that's on your mind sometimes people pick something it does that connect with your feelings in nature. It, it does just because, you know, every time I'm out walking, like just around the neighborhood here, or like going out for a jog or, you know, bike ride, there's always trash. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I just, I just think like, if I, if I was not getting that, uh, that, that bag to put peanuts in, for example, mm-hmm. right. Like the, the, the bag that you can, that you can get and you can like buy in bulk, then that is one thing that would not necessarily be out roaming around the desert, for example. And so I think that, you know, and there, there's, I just feel like there's, I mean, there's a lot of bulk buying opportunities, uh, you know, when I, when I go to the, the supermarkets that I go to, so it would definitely be, definitely be doable. And so it seems like something that I would be able to kind of to, to do. And there is a connection because there's a direct connection to the trash and me not, not having as much trash. Then I propose making it a smart goal, which is for specific measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. And if you're up for it to come back a second time to share how it went. So yeah. if you're up for that, then, and, and by making it smart, you know, it's not necessary. You can do this for the rest of your life if you like, but I'm only suggesting that you do it enough or to get to a stage where if I ask you, how did it go? You can say, based on experience, here's what I, you have enough experience to, to answer. So what would be, I think I heard you say buy no packaging or maybe, or maybe it was avoid five packaging. I forget what I heard, but what would be the specific goal and for how long would you do it? So maybe trying it for a month and, you know, let's say all fruits, veggies, nuts, rice, pasta. I'm just trying to think of like the things that I could theoretically buy in bulk and just not buy any of these things in packaging. So you'd bring your own bags with you. Yep. And either own bags or yeah, or have like a container. Okay. Do they have the, the scales where you can weigh the container? So it, it takes off the tear weight and yep. Okay. And uh, all right. So would, would it be okay with you if we schedule after we stop recording to schedule a second conversation in a month to hear how that went? Sure. I'm, I'm super down with that. Okay. I'm curious how some of the, there are always challenges that people can't foresee, which I, I, I should tell you, everyone I work with that does this, usually there's something they can't foresee. It's often something like if they travel and they're, they don't have their usual tools around, what do you do? Or mm-hmm. family or friends, you're with friends and they're like, hey, let's go do this. And you're caught off guard. How, do you, how does one handle it? Like, I remember at the, the machine, there's a machine at the store near here where the, you can put a, it, it grinds peanuts for you. So and there's a bunch of plastic containers right next to it. And everyone just gets plastic containers. But my rule is I'm only going to use a container that I bring. So a lot of people say, well, if you, if you go there without a, and you forget it, well, you know, once or twice you can get it. I'm like, no, if I don't bring my container, I don't get peanut butter that week. Right. No problem. And if I don't bring a bag, I forget to bring a bag. That means I only bring home what I can carry with my hands. Now, some people go cold Turkey, you know, the full, you know, no matter what I, but there are other things where I don't, draw a hard line. I'm like, I do my best. Like when I'm mm-hmm. picking up litter, when I plug instead of jog, I don't know if you know the term plogging, which is picking up litter when you jog. And <laughs> I like that. That's great. Yeah. It's some Swedish term. And, I, and now I've been on TV a couple of times for it. Cause I blog about it. And they're like, someone contacts me like, we're doing a story on plogging. Can we get you on camera? And so when I'm plogging, sometimes I don't pick up every piece because if I'm running a few miles, there's a lot of garbage that I pass by. So there it's more like a sliding scale. Anyway, you'll have your experience. And I suspect that, uh, well, I look forward to hearing how it goes. Perfect. And I'll, 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 I've got a notebook, so I'll take some notes on, on how, how it goes as well. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to, I'm going to be very curious because next time we speak, you're, I've had plenty of politicians on this podcast. And with all of them, I'm always curious how this, I think that this gives people stories to share as you were talking about before. And I think also it can help inform how to policy being one way of changing behavior. People often push back against authority. So I think, I hope it will build other types of leadership tool. Well, it's a leadership tool. And I hope that it also gives people in positions of renown and influence more ways to act and influence. Actually, I'll ask one thing. I, I walked you through this process and you would not have come up with the avoiding packaging while shopping without me. But so I walked you through the process, but are you, are you doing it for me? 
No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it's always, it's actually been something I've been curious about for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I feel like this, you know, through the, the framework of this podcast, I feel, you know, a little bit of a, a little fire has been lit under me to, 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 to take the step and to just, to jump into the pool. Sometimes we just need, you know, like a little, you know, a little push, a little uh, encouragement, a little fire uh, in order to, um, in order to, to, yeah, to take action. Yeah, the the project based experiential educator. I'm an adjunct professor at NYU. The the project based experiential professor in me is like, ah, oh, yes, we learn through experience so much more effectively than <laughs> lecture and case studies. Well, I propose we pick up here next time. But before we wrap up, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask, or anything worth bringing up, or any message you want to give directly to the listeners? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if people are interested in in my campaign, they can go to my website, which is my initials. So DM the number four CA.com. So DM four CA.com Derek Marshall. Oh, wait, now I'm forgetting. Yeah. Derek Marshall CA.com. And, uh, and they can look up and if they're, they feel called, they can either make a donation or volunteer. You know, we, uh, we love our volunteers. So, so yeah. Oh, now I have to ask because now thinking I was, I'll put the links on so that people can to save the typing. Mm-hmm. And also now I think of myself as based in New York city, but I guess this, this sustainable life is not particularly based in New York city, but how did you decide to, from California to connect with a DC, a, a New York city based podcast or, or am I not New York city based for the rest of the world? So it was, uh, so someone on my team, they, they've been reaching out to like different organizations. So they actually wrote to me and said, Hey, you should, you know, you should consider this thing. And so I said, okay, sounds good. Well, cool. Glad to, glad to have you aboard and, and to meet you. And I look forward to talking again in a month. Awesome. Sounds good, Josh. I really appreciated it. Derek Marshall, thank you very much. All right. Take care. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.